Well, good morning to you again. And we are deep in the Christmas season now, so Merry Christmas. Yeah, thank you. Thank you very much. And it is something that we can be merry about as we've been talking about over the last couple of weeks, the, the joy that we can experience during this time of year as we take time to reflect about the most precious gift that man has ever received, and that's the birth of the Son, Jesus Christ. But not only the birth, but through his life, death, burial, and resurrection, we've been able to gain a personal relationship with our Creator through the sacrifice that he, was, that he gave on our behalf. And even though the Christmas and the true Christmas story, you know, the one about Jesus becoming a man and, and living amongst us, you know, we have the Christmas season, which is really heavily commercialized and that there are many different stories that they get tossed around and Jesus gets tossed around in the mix uh, of, all of, of all of those different um, the stories that come along with the Christmas season. But no matter how much they commercialize it or even how much they try to remove Jesus from from Christmas, it doesn't change the fact that 2,000 years ago there was born unto us in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. No matter how much they try to downplay it, no matter how much room they try to refuse to give Jesus his place in our world, those facts will never change. He came for the purpose. He fulfilled his purpose on the cross, and that is reason for us to celebrate and to never allow that to be forgotten. Now, to redirect your attention again this morning to Luke chapter 2, we'll be dealing with verses 1 through 7. And as, as it's very clear, if you've been here for the last two weeks, you've definitely heard these scriptures. And many of you, as a Christmas tradition, once you get in with your family, usually the reading of this text usually comes, comes about sometime within the evening. Uh, I know it is with my family. But within these scriptures, what we can see is that this is a prophecy that has been fulfilled. It's the result of hundreds of years of prophecy talking about the time when Jesus Christ would come, the Messiah would come to take away the sins of his people. This is also the hope and the confidence of every human being who's ever lived that a Savior truly has come. In the book of Matthew chapter 1 and verse 21, it says, And she will bring forth the Son, and she will call his name Jesus for he shall save his people from their sins. So as we visit these scriptures again, in Luke chapter 2 and verse 1, and it came to pass that in those days that a, that a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This census first took place while Quirinius was, the govern, was governing Syria, and so all went to be registered, everyone to his own city. Joseph also went up from Galilee out of the city of Nazareth into Judea to the city of David, which was called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed wife, who was with child. And so it was that while they were there, the days were completed for her to be delivered. And she brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the end. As we get started, I guess I could get set up here. There we go. What we're going to be really focusing on is the, the phrase at the very last, the very last um, verse we just read in verse 7. There was no room for Jesus. Now, as we talked about earlier in this message, as well as a couple weeks ago, that his coming was no secret. It wasn't something that that um, was being held from the people. Actually, it was prophesied hundreds of years before he came. 
And as, as we speak in the book of Daniel, it actually narrows down the very year. In the book of Micah, chapter 5 and verse 2, it tells you the very small town, which is in Bethlehem. And we should have known that Jesus Christ was coming. Actually, it was known that Jesus Christ was coming. Micah, chapter 5 and verse 2 says this, But you, Bethlehem Ephratah, though you are little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of you shall come forth to me the one to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth are from old, from everlasting. So they knew that Jesus would come out of this small town, Bethlehem. Now, in the, within the scriptures that we read, we, see, we find Mary and Joseph. They're leaving their hometown for the sake of registration, for the sake of the law. They are being forced by the hand of the government to go to Bethlehem. I'm sure this is not a trip that they wanted to take at the time that they took it. But I also don't want you to um, have a misunderstanding here. Mary and Joseph did not go to Bethlehem because the prophecy said that Jesus was to be born there. The prophecy was written because God knew beforehand the events that would take place that would cause Mary and Joseph to be in Bethlehem. Therefore, God revealed that to the prophet, and the prophet wrote that down to make it known to us to be looking for the one to come. We know exactly where he's going to come from. He's going to come from the small town of Bethlehem. And it was no secret. It was laid out for all of us to be watching for the coming of the Messiah. And so Mary and Joseph found themselves in Bethlehem during this time. But the question is, it kind of rises whenever we read verse 7. We find that he's wrapped in swaddling clothes, lied in a feeding trough. And for the reason being is there was just no room for him. There was no room for Mary and Joseph to, to find a place to stay for the night or the couple of nights that they were there because they were brought there uh, for the sake of taxation to be registered for the census. Now, why was there no room? Well, if we just kind of take a look at the situation at hand here, we see it's very possible that the city was packed full of people for, because they were there registering for taxation. I mean, believe it or not, it's possible that the government did not think all, all the things through. I know, it's kind of shocking. They couldn't see the repercussions of what they were causing, so therefore the town actually just couldn't hold all the people packing in for the purpose of the registration. So however, that's a possibility. There's just flat out just no room for Mary and Joseph to stay. It could have been possible selfishness. You know, people going around the city, they see this young couple, this young lady, seeing her condition. She's obviously really big pregnant, but nobody was even willing to give them, give them their space for the sake of the child to be born. So that's the possibility. Selfishness is something that's, you know, not new to us, but it's been around for, uh, for ages. But whatever the reason is, the fact of the matter, there is no room is still the problem. Now, we don't know how many inns there were. We don't know how many motels or hotels that there were or how many places or how many options that Joseph had. But the fact of the matter is there were just no vacancies. Now, I don't know how many there were, but I think it's a good assumption that we can make from the Scripture to believe that Joseph tried them all. You know, he loved his wife. He knew, the, he knew the baby that he was carrying. He did not want to put her in a barn to, in order for her to give birth. He was, I'm sure, diligently looking for a place for them to stay. But room or not, the baby comes when the baby wants to, right? Some of you ladies have experienced that, and I've only heard stories and experienced my wife growing through it too. But however, the baby was on the way. As we just kind of imagine, as they're going through the town looking for a place to, place to stay, 
You know, Mary starts to have contractions, and they begin to grow, grow closer and closer together. And the pain of childbirth begins to, go, to grow more and more intense, and Mary knows that that time is getting very, very close. And she looks over and says, Joe, we've got to find a place. We've got to find a place now for this baby to be born. It's coming, and I can't stop it, and I can't wait another minute. And I can't have this baby out here in the street. So imagine just out of desperation and without any better option, Joseph takes the stable or a barn, rushes her in to get some cover, get some privacy, to get her out of the weather and to make her as comfortable as possible. And then there is where our Savior is born, in the barn in Bethlehem. And he's wrapped in swaddling clothes. And the animals are going to have to wait to eat their supper because our Savior needs a place to lay his sweet head in the manger. The Messiah came into this world without any provisions made for him at all. It's almost like no one was expecting him to come. Bethlehem was completely caught off guard at the time of his coming. No one made any provisions for him. No one was looking for him at this time, though it was made known. And this is actually common knowledge among the Jewish people. If we look in John chapter 7 and verse 42, we see that Jesus had caused some commotion and it was a general knowledge. He says, has not the scripture said that Christ comes from the seed of David and out of the town of Bethlehem where David was? It was common knowledge that the Messiah was to come in Bethlehem, but yet there were no provisions. No one was expecting him to come the way that he came or at the time that he did. No one was looking for Jesus. No arrangements were made. Bethlehem was caught sleeping and no one had made room for their king. But however, this is where God fulfilled his promise to mankind. To send a redeemer, one who would take upon the sins of the world upon himself and die in our place in order that he could offer forgiveness. This is where it happened. Though Bethlehem missed it, though Bethlehem was not looking for him, he still came into the world with no provisions made by us. If you kind of think about it, before the shepherds made it widely known, it's possible that very few people really even took notice to what happened in that stable that night. People walking by, seeing what's happening or hearing what's happening and thinking, well, that's quite unfortunate. A poor couple and a baby, a little Jewish baby being born. But however, there was no room for Bethlehem, there's no room for Jesus Christ in Bethlehem when he came into our world. But I also want you to understand it didn't change much when he grew up. Even Jerusalem was not willing to make the room for him. See, Bethlehem missed it. They missed it. They, they were caught sleeping. But however, even whenever Jesus grew up and he began his ministry and he started professing who he was as the Son of God, Jerusalem would have no part of it. They didn't want anything to do with him. They refused to believe that he was the Son of God. They refused the message that he, would, that he had brought to them. And in Matthew chapter 23 and verse 37, you, as you read this, you can feel the heart breaking of Jesus Christ. He so desperately wanted to help Jerusalem and to be their Savior. But listen to what it says. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one that kills the prophets and stones the ones that are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together as, hen, as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. Have you ever had a desire to help someone that you love so much, 
knowing that their life was going down the wrong road, knowing that it was going to end in disaster for them. And you stepped out and you tried to block them and you, and you, and you, and you went out in compassion trying to help them and they just flat out refused. That's what Jerusalem was doing with their Savior. They didn't want to accept him. In Bethlehem, they completely missed it. But whenever Jesus came and he revealed to those who, who he was and the reason why he came, they refused to accept the truth of the gospel that he was the Messiah. Completely, totally was unwilling to be, to be brought in to the family of God through what Jesus Christ was preaching. There was no room for him amongst the Jewish rabbis and the religious leaders. And just think about the New Testament and the, and the turn that it would have made and the difference it would have made if, if the religious leaders would have realized who Jesus Christ was, the power and the authority and the position of influence that they would have had if they would have received Christ as he came. What a difference it would have made. It would have made it so much difference and a lot easier for the, for, the, uh, for the church to grow and to flourish during that time because after Jesus Christ resurrected and ascended, the church had to go underground and preach the gospel as often as they possibly could, but they were being hunted down and, putting to and being put to death for it. But however, they would have no room for Jesus. And just as there was no room for Jesus in Bethlehem when he came into our world as an infant, even when Jesus Christ walked and roamed among the people in the ranks of men, he was still, there was no room for him. There was no room for him at all. And the religious leaders are the ones who would have known it even best, better than anyone else. Because whenever King Herod was made known that this king of Jews was, to be, was, born, was born, he wanted to find out where this person was. He had an idea. It's like, well, who's, this, who's this king that they're talking about? And he was very troubled by it. In Matthew chapter 2 and verse 3, it says, When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled in all Jerusalem with him. And when he had gathered the chief priests and scribes of the, pe and, and, uh, of the people together, he inquired of them where this Christ was to be born. And he said to them, In Bethlehem of Judea, for it is written by the prophet. And then they quoted Micah chapter 5 and verse 2. So they knew it better than anyone. They should have been the ones who were waiting on him. He, they should have been the ones who were preaching alongside him, saying, this is, the, this, is the, this is your Messiah. This is your Savior. But however, they made no room for him. He had no room in Bethlehem. He had no room in Jerusalem. But however, they did make a place for Jesus. If we look at the life of Jesus Christ in the ministry, the place that they were willing to make for him is they opened wide the Pilate's judgment hall as they strapped him to a stump and beat him and ripped his flesh open with a cat of nine tails. They made room for him inside a crown of thorns as they pressed it into his skull and then they blindfolded him and beat him over the head and, and mocked him and saying, if you're the son of God, then you tell us who struck you. They made room for him there. They made room as they parted the streets as he carried the cross down the road to Golgotha's hill to be crucified. They made room for him there. And on the cross... Where they, where they laid him on it, there was plenty of room there as they drove the nails into his hands and feet and stood him up above the city. They made room to take his dead body and put it into a borrowed tomb. There was room for him there. And he went through all of that for the very purpose of saving us from our sins. But I want you to know, even though someone was not willing to give him room while he was on this earth, I'm so thankful, and we praise God that now that he's resurrected from the grave, he has room at the very right hand of God in a right position as the King of kings and the Lord of lords. There is room for him in the proper place.
but there was no room for him. There we go. There was no room for him when he came into the world. There was no room for him as he walked around ministering to the people. They refused to see Jesus Christ for who he was. And it's even sad to say that even in our modern world today, there's still no room for Jesus. Have you noticed? There's still no room for him. Now, in, our, in, in the society, society in which we live, we can freely use the term God as a general sense, but that can mean so many different things, and especially in a society where words and definitions don't mean anything anyway, right? As long as you can say, well, this is my God, and this is what I believe according to that, well, whatever's true for you is true for you, and that's fine. But I want you to understand they're not, they're not, they're not looking to silence the name of God, but they were looking to silence the name of Jesus Christ. In our political society, there is room for Buddha, Allah, humanism, atheism, altruism, relativism, whatever ism you could possibly imagine, but there is no room for Jesus. There's room for every radical religion that you could possibly think of, but there's no room for Jesus. If you really think about it, who's getting labeled as the hate speech crowd? It's Christians. It's followers of Jesus, ones who want to preach and teach what the Word of God says. Those are the ones who are not being made room for. And though there's room for all of these places, and yet Jesus Christ is the one who's being pushed out. You know, in a country in which we live, we, we, have, we used to have a platform which we could openly speak and pre preach the Word of God. We were, we were able to, to, um, to, say, to, uh, to talk about the Word of God and be able to preach it without the resistance that we have today. And though they're making no room for Him, I want you to understand we are losing ground when it comes to this. What we can freely say and what we can freely speak, our freedoms in that as Christians is quickly diminishing. We live in a society today now where they are actually, they're actually confiscating pastors' computers and their sermon notes to make sure that what they're preaching is not considered hate speech. Make no mistake, they are not looking to make room for Jesus Christ. I'm going to tell you what I think the problem is. I'm going to tell you why I think that they're winning, why we're the ones losing ground and they're gaining. Because I believe that the world is seeking Jesus Christ more diligently than Christians do. Think about that for a moment. I want you to understand the world is not seeking Jesus to, to establish a relationship with God. The world is not seeking Jesus in order to come into a more, rela more intimate relationship with Him. They're not seeking Jesus for forgiveness of sin or to be transformed into His likeness. They are on a seek and destroy mission to take Him out. Now, I don't believe that this, is, that, that, um, that this is anything less than what Satan's plan has been from the very beginning. He is looking to silence the very name of Jesus Christ in our society. There is no room to be made for Jesus Christ. This is exactly what King Herod did. What did King Herod do whenever he found out that the king of Jews was born? He, said, he told the wise men, he says, once you find out where he is, you tell me and I will come because I want to go worship him. But once an angel came to the wise men, they said, don't go back to King Herod. King Herod found out about it, and it made him exceedingly angry at the fact that they were deceived. And he sought Jesus more diligently than probably anybody did during that time. His plan was this, is then, then King Herod, when he saw that he was deceived by the wise men, was exceedingly angry, and he sent forth and put to death all male children 
who were in Bethlehem and in all districts from two years of age and under, according to the time which he had determined from the wise men. King Herod sought to find Jesus. I want you to understand we live in a world that is seeking to find Jesus in order to take him out and to put him out. The world in which we live, they're doing everything in their power to remove Jesus from our society. Groups like the ACLU, the American Communist Lawyers Union, I mean the uh, American Civil Liberties Union, a terrible group of people who are doing nothing but trying to find ways to kick Jesus out. They have been known to go in and sue small towns because their council traditionally invoked the name of Jesus Christ in their prayers. They're seeking for it. They're looking for ways to make people victims in the world in which we live. Nobody's complaining about it, but they're seeking him out. They're trying to find, find places in order that they can have a case in, in order to throw Jesus Christ out. We live in a world in today where Jesus is being suppressed in our schools, in our workplaces, in our government. People are getting offended just by you, by, by you saying Merry Christmas. And the way things are going, that may be considered hate speech in the very near future. I don't know. But however, there's simply no room for Jesus in our society today. The name of Jesus is politically incorrect, and if we do stand, and if we do preach the, the word of God in its entirety, you're going to find resistance. You're going to have people wanting to shut you down. It may, not have been, it may not have been that way in the past, but that's the way it is today. You, you preach the word of God boldly enough and long enough, you will find the resistance. It will come find you because they are on a seek and destroy mission. Now, we should not back down because of that, because we carry the very words of God and we obey God rather than man. We are to preach the gospel. But the question that also comes to my mind is, you know, what, you know why, does, why does the name of Jesus offend so many people? Why is it an offensive thing? You know, they're not offended by Muhammad or Allah or Buddha. What's the biggest fuss over Jesus Christ? What's the problem? He was the purest man to ever walk the earth. He was the most perfect man to ever live. He was kind, he was meek, he was forgiving, he traveled around healing the sick, casting out demons, feeding the hungry, and even gave his life on the cross for his enemies. And if the world wants someone who, who's an example of peace, love, and kindness, go no further than Jesus Christ. But what is so offensive about him? What could possibly offend them? Listen to this about Jesus. The man Jesus did no wrong. There was no guile found in his mouth. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. And with his stripes, we are healed. He was oppressed. He was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He was brought as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before his shearers is silent, yet he opened not his mouth. What's so offensive about that? Why are people so worried about the name of Jesus Christ? Why are they trying to silence him? And not only in today's modern world, but even when Jesus Christ walked this, walked this earth, people were offended at him. If we look at Matthew chapter 13 and verse 57, it says, So they were offended at him, but Jesus said, A prophet is not without honor except in his own country and in his own house. Also another place where he, he, was, where he was considered to be offended uh, or it was considered to be offensive was Mark chapter 6 and verse 3. He says, is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary, the brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? And are not his sisters here with this? And it says, so they were offended at him. 
But what's so offensive about Jesus? If you really think about it, what is it? What's the problem? You know, there, was a, there was a recent interview uh, between uh, Ben Shapiro and John MacArthur. Anybody see that one? Okay. One hand, maybe two. Excellent interview. Watch it. You'll find it on YouTube. Whenever part of the conversation is probably, I think, about 45 minutes into the, into the interview between Ben Shapiro and, um, and John MacArthur. Now, no, understanding Ben Shapiro is an Orthodox Jew. He doesn't believe that Jesus was the Messiah. He doesn't believe in the New Testament. And John MacArthur, as it was posed to him uh, by, by Ben Shapiro, he was asked a question. He's like, you know, a lot of people think that what you do and what you say is offensive to Democrats. Now listen to what his response was. we see here is that it's not necessarily we who are offensive it's not necessarily jesus as a person who's offensive the gospel message in and of itself is offensive why is it offensive because it tells you that you're wrong and god is right it says you cannot be right with god inside your own efforts you have to let someone else do the work for you and by the way these desires that you have these desires that you have in your heart that you want to live by you can't live by those. Those are sinful. That's why they are offended at Jesus Christ. And if we have a Christianity that's not offensive, it's not true Christianity. It's not the gospel. The gospel in itself is an offensive message because, they are, because, the, because the message calls people to repentance. And that's why they were offended at Jesus Christ. They were offended at Jesus because he was calling them to repentance. He was saying, look, this, this is sinful, and you must repent of your sins and trust in Christ, or you're not going to make it. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, the life. If you want to get to heaven, if you want a relationship with God, you're not going anywhere except through me. However, it's open. This is the only way. Now, regardless of the religion that you were raised in or the false teachings that you've practiced for your entire life, if anything, if you think you're going to be right with God without going through Jesus Christ, you're not going to make it. And believe it or not, that can be offensive. Sometimes when I read the Word of God, I'm offended because that means, hey, dude, you're doing it wrong, right? Especially when somebody else brings you the Bible and says, hey, buddy, you're doing it wrong. Kind of offensive, isn't it? However, it's the truth. And if the truth offends you, you know, really your, your, your feelings don't really matter, to be honest. We adopt the truth of the Word of God based on the Word of God and we, we move forward with that, offensive or not. Now, it's not, it's not our objective to be offensive. But how, however, we lovingly, with compassion and grace, we deliver a message that is offensive. Because we want people to come to Christ on the right basis with the idea that I am wrong and Jesus Christ is right, therefore I need his help. 
The gospel says that we must admit that we are wrong and that Jesus Christ is right. But the world in their carnality, they don't want to acknowledge his teachings. They don't want to hear that. They're offended by that. And Jesus makes them uncomfortable and they feel threatened and, and convicted. And if they feel like they could remove him, if they feel like they can suppress the truth and unrighteousness, if they feel like they can just put him to the side, they can continue in their lives and just everything will be all right. But the truth of the matter is that they're not going to be all right. They're not. And Satan has blinded their eyes lest they see and understand that Jesus Christ is the true and only way to God. People are walking around blindfolded because they choose to suppress the truth. Satan is, Satan is trying to silence the name of Jesus Christ. And I want you to understand if Satan can silence the name of Jesus Christ, he will silence the truth. Because what we learn in Acts chapter 4 and verse 12, it says, Nor is there any salvation in any other, for there is no other, um, no other name under heaven given among men where we must be saved. You eliminate Jesus from the picture. There's no Christianity. There's no death. There's no burial. There's no resurrection. Jesus is the fundamental center point of, of what we believe. You erase Jesus Christ out of society, you've crippled Christianity. As a matter of fact, Christianity can't move forward unless those who are willing to be bold enough to stand up and continue to preach that in the face of people coming at you. The truth is that if we want to be right with God, we want to have eternal life. If we want our sins forgiven, we cannot get there without going through Jesus Christ. And as I said earlier, you know, we don't look to be offensive. We don't go in with the mindset, I'm, I'm here to offend you. No, but we, with grace, grace, love, we deliver the truth. But my, also, my question is, if we fear to offend people, therefore we're silent today, how bad do you think that person will be offended once they open their eyes facing the judgment that you could have warned them of? How offended do you think they'll be then? Personally, I think it's better, it's safer for us, for them, to take the risk and deliver that gospel message. And though it may be offensive and it's pointed, and it does, it, it does require us to say that you're wrong and Jesus is right, we must be willing to take that risk and that chance to do so. The gospel does require us. Because the gospel is offensive in a sense because it requires us to see ourselves for who we really are in the light of who Jesus Christ is. Now, if you watch the, the rest of that... Um, that video, you can find it on YouTube, and I encourage everyone to watch it. You have a great example of what John MacArthur did. He, went, he, he spoke directly to Ben Shapiro. He says, now I want to address this with you personally. And notice, he with, and with all graciousness, he didn't attack Ben Shapiro and say, look, everything that you believe is wrong. He went with Ben Shapiro and says, look, I need you to understand that everything about Jesus Christ is right. And he truly delivered the gospel in a loving way that may have been offensive to Ben Shapiro in truth, but however, he was able to, to deliver it. And from this day forward, I'm sure he's heard the gospel before, but from this day forward, Ben Shapiro has no excuse at all. He has heard the gospel in its entirety. And he was encouraged to turn to Jesus Christ. But because the gospel requires us to see ourselves for who we are in the light of who Jesus Christ is, that's why there's no room for Jesus Christ. That's why there is no room in our modern day society for him. Now the question we really need to ask here is, Christian, what about you? 
Where do we fit in this side? Is there room for Jesus Christ in our busy lives? Are we making room? Are we carving out the space that that Jesus Christ desires to have in our hearts and in our homes? Whenever we look at the world today in the the current condition in which which it is, many of you have lived many years above what I have. You can look back and, and, and based on experience, see the great change that our country has seen. We can look back through, through American history and see the great change that is there. We used to live in a country that was founded on the biblical teachings of the, of the Judeo-Christian worldview. And we've gone, in a little over 200 years, we've gone from that to a, to a country as a whole that's apathetic towards Christ and his followers. How did we get there? How did that happen? Who can we blame for that? Can we blame the world? No, the world is doing what the world is expected to do. It's not their fault. Can we blame God? Is he, is he not doing his part? Well, I don't believe so because God is always faithful. I believe the blame truly lies on the shoulders of the church for not giving the room that Jesus desires to have in our lives. I mean, it really just comes down to that. I believe we have a faithful God that if we serve him obediently and truthfully and with, it, when, and with every ounce of our being, I believe that he will strengthen us. I believe that he will grow us. But he's got to have that room. Jesus will only take the room that he has freely given. Behold, he stands at the door and knocks. He doesn't kick it in and say, I'm coming in, I'm taking over. He stands at the door and he knocks. And if we let him in, he will come in fellowship with us. He will change us into his likeness and he will, he will mold us into the, into the follower that he would desire us to be. But we've got to be willing to open the door. We've got to give him the room if we want to see any change in our churches, in our cities, and abroad. I believe that if every believer in Jesus Christ would do that, give him the rightful place in their lives, give him the big room in our house, Open up our hearts to him and allow him to come in and to completely direct our lives that the world would truly be changed. But we can see the damage that we have done by not doing that just over the past 200 years in our American history. This morning as we prepare for an invitation, I'm going to ask everyone to just stay seated. We're going to watch a short, short video. It's a clip that's got a very powerful song. It's kind of hard to watch, it, but it's a... It's a song that really nails down the, the thought of our sermon today. And during that time, I want you to really reflect on the Word of God and allow God to speak to your heart through the song and through the words. And if you need to do business with the Lord, the altars are going to be open. I'll, I'll be down front if you'd like to pray with me. I'll be here. But I really want us to take some time to really reflect. What room are we holding back? Are we holding anything back from Jesus? Are we really, truly giving him the room that he desires. See, in Bethlehem, they missed it. Jerusalem refused to see it. Our modern world today is offensive against it. But what about us? What can we do about that? Enjoy this. Now, Jesus came, he lived was born into a world that wasn't expecting to see him at that time. No provisions were made. Lived a life of rejection amongst men. Died for our sins. He's ascended into heaven, and he's coming back. We know he's coming back. The only prophecy left about him is his return. Are we ready? Let's don't miss him.
And the second one, let's be ready. Are we giving Jesus the true place that he needs in our lives? Or do we really need to make some changes? Let's be ready. Brother Larry, would you please close in a word of prayer, please?